Welcome to Mitz Politics with Mr. Watson. I am most certainly your host, as always, forever and eternally, Christian Watson. It is so good to be with you today on this Democratic National Convention special. That is right. We're going to be reviewing the, the past few days of the Democratic National Convention, which ended just this coming Thursday, just this last, just this last Thursday, actually, with the rather um, lethargic speech given by uh, what some some people in the media believe will be the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. I'll just say former Vice President Joe Biden right now. Uh, which really, the entire convention culminated in nothing more than a combination of logical fallacies, appeals to emotion, almost entirely pathos-driven, as we would say in, in philosophy class, pathos being that appeal to emotion, as opposed to logos, the appeal to logic, the appeal to what we can actually understand and we can, we can deduce through scientific method, through uh, scientific argumentation. Uh, the, the convention was nothing more than that, <laughs> unfortunately. And I hate being a reductionist. I hate reducing things to one quality because things have plenty of qualities. Uh, for, for example, my phone has, is more than just the screen that I use to scroll through it. My phone is also a machine that I can use to communicate, to send my voice across space and time. It's also a machine I can use to capture moments in time forever. It's, also, it's, a, it's all kind of purposes. And so political conventions themselves, including the Democratic Convention, served a whole host of purposes that extend beyond merely making argument, making, making, making sanctimonious arguments about how the current president uh, is, is evil and how conservatism is bad and how anything that is not... Uh, going towards this utilitarian idea of the public good in that is not serving the public good is abominable and needs to get uh, needs to be forsaken uh, and we'll talk about that for in a moment because Michelle Obama mentioned that <laughs> in her speech uh, so it, it, it's just the, the, but the convention is more than that though this convention as many pundits have been putting it pointing out was an attempt to unify the Democratic Party around a candidate who himself could not unify a I'm not going to insult him, who has a lot of trouble and lacks the charisma to unify the base of a party that fundamentally is not in favor of him. When I say the base of the party, I mean the grassroots activists that go out and implement the party strategies in reality. I'm talking about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They are fundamentally not in favor of him. Joe, uh, um, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders is not really in favor of him. Yes, even though Sanders endorsed him in the convention, even though AOC... Well, didn't really endorse him, endorse Bernie Sanders. Even though all this stuff happened, but, but, they, but AOC paid lip service to Joe Biden. Even though all these irregularities are occurring within this context, was supposed to be a context of unity, which it really wasn't, Bernie Sanders certainly still has reservations about Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders hit Joe Biden in the primary on his record. Bernie Sanders did not believe that Joe Biden was someone who, in his words, were for the people and had said it's for, you know, a sort of, uh, as Cornell West said, a neoliberal interest. That's what the progressive wing of the Democratic Party believes, that Joe Biden is a neoliberal um, sort of puppet emissary that will implement those ideas and thus regress the America uh, in terms of hurting the middle class, hurting the working classes, they would say, so on and so forth. So he had to appeal to that part of the part of the base. And they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. So you had a national anthem, a Star Spangled Banner recitation, 
which was to the progressive lexicon, is quite egregious because many progressives don't like to recite religion or recite God as anything special. But they quite literally, um, they being the Democratic National Com um, Committee, painted Biden as a faith and family candidate. So that he prays, that he goes to church, that his faith is a guiding principle for him. That all, if all these things are true, now, let's, I'd love to know why Joe Biden believes in coercion. I, 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 uh, what, did the, what does the ancient text say? What does, what does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, says, saith the Lord. <laughs> you know? Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Joe Biden has supported wars. Joe Biden believes in forced people to pay for people's health care. He believes in universalized... Even though he, he, he believes in a, a, re, a reduced version of the universalized, socialized medicine that a lot of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party postulate, like it's, like it's their sacred gospel. He believes in a reduced version. He does not, he does not believe in Medicare for all, and this is actually one of the things in the Democratic primary that he was attacked on. But nonetheless, he still is taking from the poisonous tree. He still is eating the fruit of the poisonous tree, Joe Biden. And the poisonous tree is coercion. The poisonous tree is the fact that the Democrats want to force people into these involuntary compacts so they can say that a morality, a moral good is being satisfied, a moral good is being served, a moral good is being furthered. I don't care if they want to do it on Monday and only on Monday or if they want to do it every all seven days of the week. They still want to do it. So that's, that seems vile to me. I'm not sure how someone who proclaims to be a man of faith can do something that is so contrary to faith, something that is just so contrary to what to the principles that certain spiritual traditions, particularly Christianity, is founded upon. Well, this is not a religious indictment of Joe Biden. I'm just saying it just seems very odd to me that they would paint him as a genuine man of faith when he holds all of these contrary positions. I, I just, I just, I don't understand that. And that's not saying that you have to have a certain political orientation to become a Christian. That's nonsense. But it is saying that men of faith typically proceed in faithful ways. Ways that are faithful, i.e. adherent to the principles of their faith. And we are to believe, we are to believe that Joe Biden is a Christian. So I, I just don't, that kind of conflicts with me. It's really, really odd. It's, there's some philosophical error in that assertion there. Uh, but no, they, they painted him as this man of faith. They painted him as this stalwart of moral character, even though Joe Biden has been accused several times of, of misconduct. And there's one case right now that is out there and that appears to be quite credible, but she has been buried by the media. They don't want to talk about her. There appears to be credible. I'm not sure if Joe Biden did it or not. I'm not going to slander the man, but it appears to be credible, the case. So if you want more information on that, you can look it up yourself. But it appears to be credible. It appears to be credible. So I don't, I don't, I, I, I just, I don't understand how you're going to paint someone as a man of moral courage, as a man of character, who, whose actions, whose decades-long career in public life clearly demonstrates that that depiction of him uh, could come under a lot of scrutiny. So that's if you're engaged, you're endeavoring in a a, a political, uh, a, a politically, um, a, a political misstep almost in strategy, a strategic misstep. That's the word, a strategic misstep. Uh, and that's just ridiculous. So uh, they tried painting him as pro-American with the Star-Spangled Banner, which is interesting because, again, progressives typically think that a lot of them view America as a nothing more than the manifestation 
of a long history of historical injustices and historical mistruths that were that, that was built that manifestation was built upon the blacks in their view of African slaves and African slaves that not who eventually turned into African Americans don't haven't necessarily got their due in society, which is why we need reparations in accordance with some of them, which is why we need anti discrimination laws, which is why we need equal uh, opportunity, affirmative action, all this stuff. That is and that is progressive parlance. You will find it in the writings of Angela Davis. You will find similar things in the writings of Judith, Judith Butler. You will find uh, Francis Fox Piven. You will find in any uh, Gore Vidal, any left-leaning progressive academic, Cornell West even, you will find a gross adherence to the philosophy of historical subservience, historical victimhood. You will find that. And so... It's very odd that, again, they are painting Joe Biden in this light at the, at the beginning of all four days of the convention as a pro-American person, which then leads us to ask ourselves, okay, they're painting him as a Christian and as pro-American. Why are they doing this? Because it is believed that the president, current president in office, who does indeed have some uh, salacious details about his personal life, is someone who lacks moral character. And lacks faith. Now let's just let's just try to let's be a little bit honest about this, guys. It doesn't matter what your president or your congressperson does in their personal life, so long as it does not grievously violate the life or sanctity of another. Let me say that again to you, because you guys are not getting this, or you guys might be getting this, but the media is not getting this, and people in general are not getting this. The American public is being coaxed into this false gospel of, 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 of a paternalism, that we just need to be the, 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 the vicars, the, the pontiffs, the, the ministers of how you're supposed to act in your personal life, not you. And it's, it's some crude, moralistic, traditionalistic collectivism that comes straight from the 50s and needs to go right back. I'm going right, to try to send it right back there in this moment. So listen to this. You are not the arbiter of someone's personal life, provided their actions do not affect anyone else in a grievous or harmful way, does not aggress upon their being. Now, if Joe Biden did sexually assault that woman, Tari, if he did do that, then yes, that matters. It matters. Because he grievously harmed someone. But if Donald Trump had an affair with a porn star, it may not be a moral thing to do. But I am much more concerned about the man's capacity to govern the nation as opposed to his capacity to remain chaste and abstinent and adherent to the altar. As a Christian myself, I do believe there are certain standards for morality, although I have very and dynamic beliefs about that. I'm not a really conservative Christian. Uh, I'm, I'm personally very conservative in my personal life, but my theology is not all that conservative. But still, I love everyone, and uh, I do think there are certain moral standards. I do find adultery to be despicable, to be morally reprehensible. But having said that, I do not believe under any circumstance that someone doing adultery renders them incapable and incapacitated to proceed forth in public life and do as the government is supposed to do, protect the natural rights, the life, liberty, property, 
of the individual faithfully. I do not believe personal impropriety inhibits someone from doing the proper role of governance. It does not. But the Democrats, with their moral sanctimony, which again is just very odd. I can't believe I'm saying the Democrat with their moral sanctimony. It's, it's so perplex. It perplexes me how ostentatious the Democrats have become towards the tides of political anger. They become ostentatious to it in the sense that they are constantly serving it. They are constantly serving it. They are constantly serving it. See, see, the Republican Party right now, one thing you say about the Republican Party, they are not, right now, they are under the boot of President Trump. They don't have the ability or the luxury, I suppose, to shift in their ideological, um, ideological dispositions right now. They don't. They just don't. They don't have that ability. They don't, they don't have that luxury. Because if they do, Trump's base will, will, will falter. Trump himself will falter. The party will cave in. They won't have. They'll, they'll lose many seats. They understand that the principles that President Trump have set up for them are principles that they must stand for themselves, whether they want to or not. I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm simply making a a purely pedagogical observatory statement. But the Democratic Party is still trying to find its way. It's still trying to find its soul. It's still trying to find a way to do everything that it possibly can to bridge the centrists whom of whom they understand a majority of America or a majority of the old wing of the Democratic Party constitutes and also bring in the young, virile, you know, just bustling progressive activists who follow AOC, who follow Alana Presley, who follow the squad, who are disciples of Ilhan Omar, who are disciples of Cornell West, who are disciples of many classrooms in the in American universities, who believe in critical race theory, who believe in intersectionality, who believe in oppression theory, who believe in race-based nonsense, who believe in this absolute bile which is doing nothing more than, than destroying our sense of individuality, which is destroying our ability to adhere to the principles upon which this country was founded. Now, I'm not trying to appeal to tradition here. Oh, Christian, you're doing an appeal to tradition. Ha, 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 ha. No, I'm not saying that the principles this country is found, was founded upon are sacred and good because America was founded upon them. That would be an appeal to tradition. That'd be like a Soviet, uh, a, a someone from Soviet Russia, old Soviet Russia, saying the principles that my country was founded upon are the principles they're founded upon, therefore they are good. Not only is that an appeal to tradition, that's also a circular argument. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying... Because America was founded upon certain kinds of principles, and the principles themselves were good before America acknowledged them and manifested them in the grandest political sense the world has had ever seen at that time, and still has ever seen in the history of, 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 of in its history. When I say that, I mean yes, the ideas were good before America was founded upon them. So let me say it again. Let me make it even more clear. This, these, these ideologies that many young progressives follow are destroying their sense of individuality, They're, thereby destroying their sense of self and keeping them from acknowledging the promise 
of the principles that America was founded upon. And those principles, my friends, are not confined to a particular political persuasion. Those principles can be acknowledged by anyone. Now, practiced, well, you're going to have to uh, neglect a lot of your preconceptions if you're going to practice the principles of natural rights of life, liberty, and property to their fullest extent. You're going to have to reject the idea that that, well, that, that health care, a service that someone has to get skilled to provide is a human right. You're going to have to reject the idea that everyone is entitled to everyone else's services. You're going to have to reject the idea that altruism, even forced altruism, is the best course of action. You're going to have to reject the idea that the public good matters more than my personal good or a, a, or, or a sort of universal sense of what good is that is enshrined in rules-based ethics, that is enshrined in a concrete idea that reflects that objective reality, that principle objective reality and then pushes it forward in a manner in which people can understand it, people can measure it, people can act on it. You're going to have to reject the subjectivity of the postmodernists that have been spewing out nonsense, telling us the reality is fake, telling us that gender is not real. You're, you're going to... Man, 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 man. You're going... Man, man, okay. You're going to have to do a lot of things to get yourself back in line with the principles America was founded upon. But you can still be of a left-leaning persuasion, of a right-leaning persuasion, and believe that, you know, these principles are sacrosanct. They are, they are, they are inviolable. They are above all objective. That's not a political thing. It's a philosophical acknowledgement. But they don't want to do that. They want to put up appearances and deal with inauthenticity. That's what they want to do. And so after they painted Joe Biden as this morally virtuous man, which again, I'm, 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 I'm sketchy upon that, and this individual who loves America, and again, I'm, I'm sketchy upon that as well, because I don't... I, I, look, look, look. The sense of nationalism, of patriotism... As long as a president respects the ideas of America, he need not affirm the history of the country. That's just my, my opinion. Some people think that he does need to affirm. I, I disagree. As long as a president respects the ideals of America, he need not affirm the country's history. Uh, that's, a, that's a different topic for a different podcast. And if you want to know more about my, my views on patriotism and nationalism, so on and so forth, then please go check out my 4th of July podcast. Uh, it's one of my, one of the most, I think, best performances by me explaining the philosophy of Americanism. Please go check that out, because that is the best way to ex for me to explain my views. I don't want to waste too much time doing that on here. So after they're done doing this, they bring out the, they roll out the red carpet of progressive celebrities. Barack Obama, <laughs> Michelle Obama, you know. Uh, Kamala Harris comes out and does her speech. Billie Eilish does her speech. For those who don't know who, the, who Billie Eilish is, she is a singer who does a lot uh, of very, what's the word for it? Very artistically expressive, not too, that's too vague. Very dreary, morbidly dreary music that is pretty catchy and makes some sort of a point. For example, she had a song called You Can See Me, You Should, you should See Me in a Crown, which is talking about her attempt to project a sense of superiority into the world, even though surrounding her is nothing more than dread 
and in, in, in mediocrity. You should see me in a crown. I'm going to run this nothing town. So that's what the words say. Well, she was invited to go to the, uh, the Democratic Convention. Well, not, well, not to go there, but to go to speak at the Democratic Convention there virtually. And she did so from a graveyard. And Ben Shapiro had a fit about this. He had a, he had a fit about this. He was attacking me. I'm not going to do that. It's just crazy. I don't think. I think, I think, I think it's a little bit sophomore to devote all of your time <laughs> to attacking uh, a child or a not a child. Well, she's, a, she's a, an adult now, an adult who do, does music for having a political opinion. And, and, and the right has got to stop doing this. Please stop attacking celebrities or actors or baseball players or football players for having a political opinion, right? So, for example, I want to be a political pundit, right? I study politics. I understand politics. I understand political theory. Theoretically, I suppose I am more qualified to talk about politics than a lot of actors celebrities are. However, if you are going to erect this sort of elitist hierarchy in which only a few, select few, can talk about politics, people with degrees, people who know politics, then you're not really, you don't really have a republic. Because a republic is predicated upon the idea, you know, of people being able to participate in their government, being able to hold the government accountable. And necessarily, not all people are going to be learned. Disparities, whether you want to believe the left or not, exist for a reason. Disparities are natural to the human condition. We are all different. We all shall be different, no matter what. And that differentiating principle is actually what actually makes us human, what actually makes all of us unique. And so, you cannot expect only the experts to opine about political matters. Political matters, unfortunately, affect all of us. They shouldn't. Political matters should be so minuscule and small that they, we don't even know they exist. But unfortunately, the government has become so, so entrenched in our culture that they, they, they infect and affect all of us. So yes, I don't mind a celebrity speaking at a convention. I don't mind that. I was not, I was not upset at when Scott Baio did it, and I'm not upset when Billy Eilish did it. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't even Scott, Scott Baio is pretty handsome. <laughs> My lord. Uh, but I didn't mind when Scott Bayo did it. No, did I mind when Billy Eilish did it? I, I, don't, I don't care. I want to know about the content of their words, their hearts, their minds, not what, what label they attach to go around the world and use to accrue monetary capital. Because, in my opinion, the, accru the accruement, the procurement of monetary capital is secondary to the content, the capital that is within your mind. The, pure, the procurement of monetary capital is secondary to the capital that exists in your mind. Money's important, but what exists in your mind, which helps you make the money, which also helps you produce empathy, understanding, revelation, all of that is vitally important for you to understand, for you to holistically understand the whole of the universe, the whole of the world. That, all that is vitally important for you to have an education. A true education. So I don't care about what they use to make money. That's secondary to me. And so one of the more concerning speeches throughout the DNC was Michelle Obama's speech. It definitely was. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of the speech, that, and, and I'm going to respond a little bit while I'm here. Uh, it's very concerning to me. So, because in my opinion, it was nothing more than, again, a, an, an appeal to the, to, to the tradition of a few years ago, if that even exists. A, a, a sort of reduction of, of these entire last four years, nothing more than chaos and division and so on and so forth, which a lot of them have, a lot of it has been, but, but not really, that applies some nuance to it. It's been, an, it was an attack on individualism, it was an attack on uh, 
and, and attack on an adherence to the self. It was an attack on a lot of things. They were just it was absolutely abysmal. So let me just read you some of it. Um, first, one of the things that stood out to me, she said, I'm, I'm, I've met so many of you. This is Michelle Obama. I've heard your stories. And through you, I have seen this country's promise. And thanks to so many who came before me, thanks to their toil, sweat, and blood, I have been able to live that promise myself. This is the sort of uh, lack of lack of personal ownership, lack of obligation that Barack Obama talked about in his speech in, two, in 2011, 2012, when he said, well, "If you have a business, you didn't build that. People help, had to, people had to go build the roads for you to do this." This is what Elizabeth Warren's theory of you don't own your stuff; people own it because people helped you obtain your stuff. The problem with this is that you still own your stuff, though. You, you still, <laughs> that's still your stuff. It was still your work which led up to you getting that stuff. I don't care if someone along the way may have incidentally, indirectly helped you. That's great. But if I don't know who that, those people are, I have no obligation to them. I also, I never asked for someone to build me a road. I never asked for someone to build me a house. I never asked for someone to make the car that I drive. I never asked for that. I don't ask for that. I asked the real estate broker. When I go get my house, I don't have a house yet, but and theoretically, when I go get my house, I ask him, okay, sir, what, how, what can I do here? I ask him and I pay him. I make sure that he, I'm obligated to him. I ask the car dealer when I get a car. I make sure that I'm obligated to them. I, I, I enter into a contract and I pay that contract. I don't ask anyone to do things for me. And therefore, I am not responsible if people decide to go and do those things for me. I'm just not. So this idea that someone built a road, therefore they should get my money, that's not, I didn't ask you to build a road. I did, I did not hire you and contract you to build a road for me. So I'm not obligated to you. It is the theory of contracts. I, I, would, I would importune the Democrats, particularly Elizabeth Warren and Michelle Obama here, to go and read about it. <laughs> Next part of the speech. <laughs> it's the truth. I didn't ask people to do anything for me. They, they decided to do it themselves. And I cannot be put in an involuntary pact, and a pact that I never solicited. That is a form of slavery. Packs that I didn't solicit, and then trying to take my stuff because for something I didn't solicit. That is that is just abominable and unethical on so many levels. So anyway, she also mentions that that the presidency has a core set of requirements, and some of these requirements I've been a little bit. I'm a little bit. Dubious on? I don't know. I'm a little bit suspicious of. She says, the presidency, it requires clear-headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass, and an ability to listen, and an abiding belief that each one of the 330 million lives in this country has meaning and worth. Well, I think some of that is true. Right? You do have to understand complex issues are going to be present. You do have to have some level of clear judgment. But a devotion to facts and history, this is funny. This is funny. When Barack Obama extrajudiciously bombed, dropped the first bomb in Syria and then went on to topple a regime which is, and, and caused a several year uh, sort of civil war of competing sides that are still trying to stabilize the country of Libya, when he did that, he said that I do not need <laughs> Congress. I will solicit the UN. I will solicit international approval 
or I suppose their international diktat that says I can do that, even though the UN really has no legal power over United States warfare uh, activities, unless those warfare activities have some sort of grievous human rights violation. But the inception of those activities, the UN has zero power over. But President Obama said, oh no, I have the UN, the UN, I'll go with them, forget Congress. That's a devotion to facts and history. I, 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 I'm not trying to say hypocrisy. I'm trying to say that these are standards that are not being applied consistently. I'm saying consistency. So not hypocrisy, but consistency. Hypocrisy is one of the most stupidest political arguments anyone can ever make. This is not about hypocrisy. This is about consistency. Michelle Obama wasn't, was certainly not consistent in these ideas when her husband was president. So why is she being consistent now? I don't understand that. If these ideas are sound, you need to apply them consistently 24-7. You, you do not need to apply them when it politically benefits you. And it benefits the guy who happened to be the vice president of your husband. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Uh, and an ability to listen and a moral compass. I mean, President Obama bombed many children over in the Middle East. President Obama, his administration, got caught doing a drug running operation, which gave well, hundreds of firearms, which are now being used by Mexican drug cartels to perpetuate death and destruction across Mexico and parts of the United States. A moral compass. An ability to listen. Barack Obama said, I have a phone and I have a pen, and I will use them if Congress does not want me, does not want to abide by what I say, and does not want to help me with what I'm doing. An ability to listen. Now, this is not to say that Donald Trump does not have that Donald Trump has all these things that Michelle Obama is saying that he's lacking. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that these principles are only applied when they're convenient. That's the issue. That's the issue. That's the issue. When they're convenient to people, they want to apply these issues. They don't want to apply these issues when. They aren't convenient when it reflects on who they are. We have an issue as human beings being able to look at ourselves and critique ourselves. What did Eric Clapton say? Before you accuse me, take a look at yourself. That's what he said. I know it was a terrible, terrible saying, but still. It's one of his hits from the 90s. Before you accuse me. That's what he said. We, can, we, we don't want to do that, though. The ego is a good thing and it's a bad thing at the same time. Having a strong ego is the backbone, the spinal cord, of the man or the woman. But having an overinflated ego is their demise. And this is just blind, egotistical nonsense that she's spitting out here. And so she goes on to say that she, she, she adulates her husband, of course, her husband's performance. When my husband left office with Joe Biden by his side, we had a record-breaking stretch of job creation. Of course, we understand job creation does never come from the president. The president does not create jobs. Individuals create jobs. The private sector creates jobs. The president does not create jobs. So that's, that's number one. And number two, Barack Obama did so, so many economically disastrous things that it's a wonder, it's a miracle that in spite of his regulations, in spite of his, his, his economic diktats that were, that, were, that were meant to secure his sanctimonious moral vision, of a sort of universal economic opportunity for everyone, or economic outcome for everyone. Uh, despite all of that nonsense, that paternalistic nonsense, we persisted. That is not a mark in his favor. That's a mark against him. 
So thank God to be persistent, Michelle. Thank God. She goes on to say, we secured the right to health care for 20 million people. Now, now, of course, I understand this is not quality health care. Uh, <laughs> this is not health care that a lot of those people even wanted. And like a lot of people, those people were actually kind of forced to the exchange. Most of those people actually lost their original uh, doctors. Uh, <laughs> this is not health care that is cheap by any means. Uh, this is not health care that was even voluntary or solicited. I mean, not only did people lose their stuff, but like... <laughs> There was literally an individual mandate that taxed people. He put like almost a thousand dollar fine on them if they decided not to take the the program and if they didn't have health care. So that's not so that it wasn't. She, they're trying to paint this as benevolent. She's trying to revise history in the favor of the Obama Biden administration. That's not what it is. Reality will stand independent of what Michelle Obama is saying. We were respected around the world, really, after dropping all those bombs after I have to. <laughs> oh, my Lord. We were respected around the world after dropping all of those bombs, after consistently, consistently, just, man, rallying our allies to confront climate change. Oh, yes, the Paris Climate Accords, which thankfully the president, uh, our current president, if I could praise him at all, I would say that he, he definitely got us out of that, thankfully, which was essentially an economic authoritarian uh, tract that was meant to force a one-sided idea of environmental safety and environmental care upon American people, upon, upon, upon everyone. And it omitted, it, it conveniently omitted the number one offender of the environment, which is China. <laughs> but no, we were respected, even though China was not in our deal, and China, which is the worst offender, offender didn't want to be in the deal. We were respected among our allies. And our leaders had worked hand-in-hand -hand with scientists to permit, prevent an Ebola outbreak from becoming a global pandemic. Now, of course, Ebola is not like the coronavirus. Ebola is a virus that spread through liquids contacting you and things like that. It was not as contagious, so to speak. There was not as much opportunity for the Ebola virus to be as contagious as the coronavirus. The coronavirus primarily spreads through droplets in the air that come from talking, sneezing, so on and so forth. So that's not that you can't even. They are not equivalent. Let's try not. Let's try not to. Try, let's try not to make the, compare things that are not too equivalent. Yes, they were both diseases, and to some people, according apparently to Michelle Obama's speechwriters, those diseases were enough for us to say, all right, that's a disease. We confronted the disease, even though the, the content of the disease was way different. And so she goes on and on and on talking about Black Lives Matter and that if you don't believe, if, if you get up to that when we say Black Lives Matter, something's wrong with you and you think that it's, it's abominable. We instilled our girls with a lot of moral vision, a lot of moral courage, all this kind of stuff. Presidents support by white supremacists, so on and so forth. That was a Michelle Obama speech. And a lot of the other speeches are nothing more than a rehearsal of that in a different style, including the speeches of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Oh, we've got to fight pressing issue X. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Listen, people. This was nothing more than a ceremony of political godhood that is attempting to impose Joe Biden and Kamala Harris upon the American public as savior deities who will kick out 
the false god currently in office. This is some sort of mythos, some sort of grand epic at the level of Beowulf, at the level of the Odyssey, some sort of grand, grandiose narrative that they're painting, and it doesn't even have the rapturous lore of an epic. What we're seeing here, we are seeing someone who can barely compose himself, and another person who has composed herself in all the wrong ways, and who is hiding behind her sex, hiding behind her color to deflect criticism, saying that criticizing her is tantamount to being racist, to, be, to being racist or being uh, to being uh, racist or misogynistic, which is nonsense. I, we have a party here that is doing its best to make the identity of a people matter more than who they actually are as people. We have a party here who is doing their best to make everyone believe that care and compassion are, are attached to government action. And if you are against government action to pursue care and compassion, you are a heartless and callous individual. We have a party here that believes so many of the wrong things and have spent four days constantly pushing those wrong things on to Americans. Now, do not think that I'm going to sit here next week and praise the Republican Convention. You'll probably see a lot of appeals to nationalism there, a lot of appeals to blind patriotism. Not patriotism itself is good, but blind patriotism. You'll probably see a lot of appeals to emotion there as well. Well, here's what I'm saying, though. This event, particularly, is an egregious example. An egregious example of what happens when you pretend to want to unify people and you pretend to hate quote-unquote division, and yet the very words, the very syllables that are uttered off the tip of your tongue are slowly and utterly causing universal division to happen every single day. Politics, my friends, is a game of division. Politics, my friend, my friends, is nothing more than a competition between two sides who have vested historical interests and who care nothing about the actual principles that their country was founded upon and everything about the principles that drive their narrow causes. Politics, my friends, is not about honor right now. It's not. It's not about honor. It's not about good character. It will metamorphosize and take the form of a chameleon of those things when it is politically convenient for one of the parties. But it's, it's not, it's not, it's not exactly what those things are. So, we should understand something, my friends. The era of Trump has really redefined the concept of authenticity in politics. And it should inform us that regardless of your political persuasion, I know there are Republicans and Democrats and progressives and libertarians, all people who watch this show, regardless of your political persuasions, we need to ask ourselves one very serious question. We have to ask ourselves, is it worth, and it being this current political conversation we're having, is it worth the cost to the truth? Are these conventions worth it? Reevaluate your own tribalistic propensities, your own tribalistic actions. Are they worth it? Are they worth it? I, now of course I've only analyzed 
a fraction of the speeches and things that happened at this event. There were plenty of things that happened, plenty of other things. But I focused on what I believe was important. And so we have to really ask ourselves, my friends, how are we going to proceed forward from here? Are we going to be more pensive about politics? No pun. Or are we going to continue to listen to these kind of these, these people, Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and whoever, whatever people Republicans put up that are stop having the same nonsense? Because I will be just as critical about them too. Are we going to continue to listen to these people and just blindly nod our heads to what they're saying because it makes us feel good, it satisfies our temporal political desires? Or will we actually proceed forward with a new vision, a new hope, as George Lucas would have said in the 1970s when, with this first rising of Star Wars? And when we take that new hope and enshrine it into a new political dynamic for the country? Or will we continue to, as Ralph Waldo Emerson, American genius, said, carry around the corpse of the past, the corpse of talking points and political slogans, and forever bind ourselves to them. Think about it. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, so on and so forth. Uh, my, YouTube my YouTube channel, Christian Watson, please look that up, subscribe there, or just type in Pensa Politics on YouTube, I'll come up. Um, but I, I will leave you with that to think about for now, my friends. Uh, until next time.